I got asked a question from time to time, and I got asked it again this, this week. Um, in talking about John fourteen six, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Do we believe that here? Do I believe that? And if so, how do we believe it? And, and so that question will keep coming back because for modern Western Christianity, it's a central question. And of course, my answer is always the same. Emphatically, yes. I absolutely believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to Father, the only way to our Lord in heaven. But as I say that, I realize that I probably am meaning it in a way that is not going to be exactly the way it was framed in the question. And so what we need to talk about is, how is that true from our point of view? Most importantly, how is it true as far as we can tell from Jesus' point of view as a first century Jew, teaching in an Eastern language to an Eastern people with an Eastern worldview. Because that's the closest we're going to get to what Jesus was talking about when he made the statement in the first place. So yes, we believe it's true. Emphatically, yes. But how is it actually true? For years we've been saying here, in one way or another, that Jesus is both a person and a process. He's both person and process. Now, the church has come to focus more on the person of Jesus and exclusively, almost, as Jesus as a person and has lost the whole process part of it. So then when we start talking about Jesus as the way, we're still focused on Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the man, knowing him historically, theologically, whatever. But what about Jesus as a process? Which is more important? Person, process, neither, both, kind of the wrong question to ask because in in Jewish thinking it's always both and and not either or. So both, of course, are vitally important. But if we don't have a balance between the two, we're going to lose the essence of what Jesus is trying to get across here. Important to remember that Jesus never pointed to himself. He always pointed to the Father. Right? Making statements like, You know, I don't do anything on my own initiative. I only do what the Father shows me. Everything I do is the Father working through me. He was always pointing to the Father, never pointing to himself. His first followers called themselves Talmidi Urha, which means followers of the way. Jesus talked about the way, this Urha, this way of living that he called kingdom that was the only way to the Father. He laid out the attributes of the kingdom person in the Beatitudes and over and over again. He lived it with his life. And his first followers, this is so interesting to me and so I believe critical. His first followers, those who lived with him and listened to his teaching from his lips, called themselves Talmidi Urha, followers of the way. Not followers of Jesus, followers of the way. They had a way of combining person and process in such a way that they realized that the process was the way to the person. And there was no other way. There was a way of living life. There was something that we had to live and experience and do if we were going to understand what Jesus was talking about. If we were going to be able to live as he lived and have the freedom, the absolute freedom that he was talking about. And there's no other way to do this. There's no shortcut. That beautiful image Jesus gives us of the sheep enclosure and says, anyone who climbs over the wall is a thief and a robber. 
You know, I am the door of the sheepfold. And anyone who goes by me through this way can go to pasture and come into safety at night. It's through that way. It's through Jesus as this process, as this gate, as this way. So, we need to pay attention to these first priorities that were established by Jesus' first followers, I believe, in order to understand what John 4.16 is all about and how it is true. So if you want to know the person, we need to live the process. Kind of like uh, the problem that I see with online dating. <laughs> Where did that come from? Left field. You know. But see, online dating gives you the sense that you know a person. You read their profile, you know who they are, you, you, you exchange all these texts and emails, you talk on the phone, and you think to know the, you know the person. You know, especially ones that are you know, geographically separated. You think you know the person. But the truth of the matter is that you don't really know anybody until your toothbrushes are hanging side by side. That's how you really know a person. But at least in the dating process, in the courtship process, you get to spend time with the person. You see them in all different sorts of, of circumstances and stress levels and everything else, and you start to get a sense of who you're dealing with. That's how we get to know somebody. Not because we read about them, right? Not because we even read what they wrote, but by living with them and seeing them in all different sorts of situations. That's how this really starts to work. That's how we know others. So to make the point a little bit finer, how do you know music? How do you really know music? If I hand you the score to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and you're holding it in your hands. Do you know that piece of music? I mean, take a look at the little image on your inserts. You know, there's music manuscript there. Do you know that music by looking at it? If I give you a French horn, if I give you a violin, and you learn everything there is to learn about the acoustics of this instrument, where the stops are, how it works, do you know music? If you study music theory for four years and get a degree, just reading out of books, you know, if you know all the theory and everything about harmony, do you know music? Friday night, uh, Thursday night it was, Stephen Olga took uh, Marion and I and Nina out to a Bee Gees tribute concert. Yes, woohoo! <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there listening to this music, and I wasn't a Bee Gees fan particularly, but I knew every song. I mean, gosh, these guys are, you know, I forgot how many hit records they made and who they wrote for and everything. But the most, the most amazing thing to me was not so much even watching them, even though these guys were spot on, the vocals were amazing, but watching the people. That's what was really the entertainment here. The row right in front of us was all baby boomers, you know, all a little bit past their prime, but they were reliving the good old days. I'm telling you that. You know, they were standing up, they were, they were dancing, and of course that's all we could see was their rear ends moving in unison here. At one point they all had arms around each other, sort of doing a chorus line thing. But even more fun than that, there were two ladies sitting right next to me on my left-hand side. Uh, they looked to me like they were in their mid-70s. You know, white-haired ladies. And they sat down. They didn't so much stand up and dance, but they were clapping and they were singing along and they were just having, they were transported as I'm watching these ladies. Probably in their 30s, you know, when the, when the Bee Gees actually hit the airwaves. But what I'm watching is this transportive experience that happens in music. You want to know music? That's how you know music. You go to your first symphony orchestra. You go to your first live 
26-piece jazz band and let that shout chorus literally blow your hair back. Now you know music. Now you've experienced it. You see, all the other things, the music manuscript, that's just a conveyance of ideas. That's the, the, the idea going from composer to performer. The theory, that's what allows things to happen, of course, and the instruments make it all possible. But all of those things are just conveyors. They are just the means to the experience. They're the means to the performance. They make the performance possible, and they make this transportive experience possible. And I see your heads going up and down. I think you all get that, right? You understand that that's true. So why, when we're holding on to the Bible, do we think we know God? Why, when we study the Bible, when we study theology, when we participate in ritual practices or learn about the ritual practices and the symbolism of the church and the traditions of the church, suddenly we think we know God because we've read about him. See, all of those things, the scriptures, the theology, the ritual practice of of all these religious traditions are all means to the end as well. They are pointing toward the performance, quote-unquote. They're pointing toward this transport of experience of God's presence. And when we have had the experience, when we have taken that time with God, when he makes us get up and dance, (laughs) when he takes us in these places, then we're having the transporting experience. Then we're getting to know God. Now, does that mean you can't know God from reading Scripture? No, that doesn't mean that. I remember reading about Leonard Bernstein. You all know Leonard Bernstein, famous composer and pianist and conductor and all. He is said to be able to, you could put a score in front of him and he could hear the whole thing and all the parts. He just had that kind of mind and he knew music that well. In essence, he was holding the score, but he was having the performance interiorly at the same time as he was looking at the score. Think about you in a devotional time with your Bible, with your scripture in front of you, reading the scripture and having that transporting experience right then and there. It happens if we allow it to happen. But if we keep the scripture out here objectified as a study, thing that we have to learn and categorize and understand, it's a completely different experience. You know, than being a 70-year-old lady with your friend listening to the BG lookalikes and soundalikes, just transported by that experience. Are we allowing ourselves to go there? Are we realizing that these tools that we have are all about going to that experience? Did you see that little quote that I put up there from Leonard Bernstein? I love that. Why do so many of us try to explain the beauty of music, thus depriving it of its mystery? That is so true. We do that all the time. We lose what God really is in the actual experience by spending so much time trying to figure him out. How are we going to figure him out? How are we going to actually do that? This was Jesus' priority. To encourage, to empower, and to engage in this way, capital W, this process of knowing truth you know, the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is a person. Ultimately, truth is the person of God. Just one of those. If we're going to know truth, then we're going to know the person. And the way to do that is this way. How does Jesus describe it? Take a look at Matthew 12, at verse 38. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Okay, this is so... Typical, isn't it? Don't we all want to see a sign? 
good grief. I want to see a burning bush. You know, I want to see the clouds part. I want to see a sign. We were talking about signs last week in one of our groups. And we came to the conclusion that signs aren't big, spectacular things. You know, they can be the little, littlest things. One person said they just saw a white butterfly going through our courtyard. That was a sign. What was a sign? Well, just that God is good. God is still there. Everything is going to be okay. Yeah, I'm in recovery and my life's a mess and I've got to go back to it and try to pick up the pieces. But right now, with this butterfly in front of my face, it's okay. That's a sign. I want a sign. They want a sign. Say, give us a sign. And Jesus says, you're not going to get a sign. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, all Jews knew the story of Jonah. They knew what he was talking about when he talks about the sign of Jonah. We don't as much. But if you recall the story... Jonah is running away from God. God wants Jonah to go and preach to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh is in Assyria. Assyria were the ones who, just a generation before Jonah, had come in and completely overrun the northern kingdoms, dragged a bunch of people off to slavery, killed others. Jonah had a really hard heart. He was bitter. He was angry. He wanted Assyria to burn. And it was going to be a cold day in hell before he was going to go and try and save those people. I'll tell you that. So he runs from God, thinking he can get far enough away. But he's swallowed up by the fish as he's trying to sail away. And he has this transport of experience. He's spit up on the shore. He's forced to go someplace he doesn't want to go. I don't know how that could be a better description, actually, of death and what Jesus went through. And when he told his followers, you're going to have to go and be led where you don't want to go. This is the way it works. This is the experience to go down into the belly of the whale, full of all of your resentments, all of your victimhood, all of your anger, to go down into that place where everything is purged, everything is siphoned off, everything is dissipated, so that you can come back up on the other side. And take your place in this kingdom. Find the kind of life, live the kind of abundance that Jesus is talking about. This is the way. This is the shape of the journey. And there's no other way that we can do this. Ladies, you all know, if you want to really fundamentally change the color of your hair, what do you have to do first? You've got to bleach it, right? You want to go from dark brown to platinum blonde, you've got to go white first. And then you can add the color. What if you want to go that bright, bright red, that crazy red that you see? You know, you got to go white first and then go the red. Guys, I don't want to leave you out of this. (laughs) If you really want to repaint the furniture, what do you have to do first? You got to strip it. You got to sand it, you know, and then you can put the new coat on. It's the same thing with us. We got all that stuff in us. We got all that hair color. We got all that gunk on our surface. That has to be stripped off before the new thing can be put on and it can really shine with the original color that it's supposed to have. This is what's going on. This is the shape that Jesus is talking about. If you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Why? Because you're going to have to kill all that stuff. You're going to have to let die. You're going to have to crucify that willfully, consciously, 
Let it go, which means you first have to identify it. What is it? What do you think the fourth through seventh steps are all about? It's the same process. Make your list of all the character defects that you know about, but as you go through the process, I guarantee there's going to be a whole heck of a lot more that you hadn't bargained for when you started. That's the way this thing works. This is what Jesus is talking about. It's a process. Faith itself is a process. Take a look at Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, for us now, the, tr- the trouble is that faith has become sort of a commodity. You know, it's become a thing, a certainty. It has become just a completely certain idea or concept in our head, a thought. And so once you have that, this whole Hebrews 11.6 changes meaning. Without certainty, it's impossible to please God. Without the absence of doubt, it's, the impo- it's impossible to please God. Do you know how often I was bludgeoned with this as I was a new evangelical Christian? Anytime I expressed any kind of doubt or uncertainty, anytime I expressed any kind of anxiety, it's impossible to please God without faith. You know? And then I got guilt on top of the anxiety. What is Hebrews really talking about? Is faith the absence of doubt? No, we've gone over this several times. If you look at the original languages, that's why the original languages keep coming to our rescue here. You realize that both in the Greek and in the Aramaic that stands behind the Greek, the word used for believe or for faith comes from the same roots. And it doesn't just mean an idea, a thought, or a concept. It really means belief, faith, and trust all together. The three are inseparable. And what you see here is there is a process. The idea, the first idea, the first concept that you get that's different from all the other concepts you have, as that deepens enough, it allows you to take the first step, the first risky step in a new direction that you haven't gone before. And as you move in that new direction, even though it's risky and full of anxiety and full of doubt because it's all new territory, it's undiscovered country in your life. As you move through and you have the experiences that you have, you start to develop the certainty, not intellectually, but experientially, that we call trust. Once we move out in the direction and wonder if we're going to be caught, wonder if we're going to be held and and provided for and empowered, and we are, then we start to realize that's a good direction. That's God. And we keep going, and we keep going. And more and more of that blessed assurance starts to come, but not from the top down, not from the head, but from the bottom up, from our feet actually moving in that direction, from belief to action to experience, with the end result being the trust, the assurance. Without that assurance, without that trust, of course it's impossible to please God. Not that God is waiting to be pleased by us, Again, this is a figure of speech. God is always pleased. God is always loving us. He is patient with the the steps intermediately that we have to take. But if we're going to enter into the pleasure of God, if we're going to enter into the delight of God, which is what the word sebiana, which we translate as will, actually means, if we're going to enter into the will of God, the pleasure, the desire, the delight, the deepest purpose, it's because we have gone there ourselves, finally. 
we're able to finally rest in that place and then we can love as God loves. That's faith as process. And now Hebrews can sing to us instead of hit us over the head with another thing that we have to try to be good enough in order to be accepted. Next, take a look at Matthew 7. This is another one. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks find. And to him who knocks it will be opened. And to us it sounds like saying the, three, the same thing really three times. You know, ask, seek, and knock. We're just going to get, get, get. And all I have to do is ask, and it's going to be given to me. If I just pray correctly, it's going to be given to me. If I look for something, I'm going to find it. But when you break this down into the Aramaic, it changes again. To ask in Aramaic is selu, which is related by root to selah, which is the word for pray. Selah means to pray. When you hit that in the Psalms, sometimes a little break there, it says selah. That means to pray. But the prayer literally means you lean into, you incline toward. It's a hunting term where you create a trap for a small animal in the woods, you know, and you set the snare and you cover it over with leaves and you you hide the, the line and you retire into the blinds and you wait quietly and expectantly for something to happen, for the for the snare to be tripped. It's that kind of expectancy. It's clearing a place, opening up a space, and then quietly waiting. To ask with that kind of intensity, with that kind of leaning into, is not a casual or passive thing. It's active. It's leaned into. It's more like a police interrogation. There's an urgency behind it. There's a desire behind it. There is a need, a felt need, that this is important. I want this in my life. I desire this in my life. To start with that, then to move into seek, bea, which means a diligent search from inside to outside. There we are, back through steps four through seven, the cleansing process, going through again from the bottom up. Is there anything in here? Is there anything in me that is going to deflect, divert, or completely block that urgency, that desire for this thing that I'm moving toward? That's bea, the search. And then kosh, that's the... That's knock, kosh in, in Aramaic, is, is the crazy one because literally it means to sound a musical note or to hammer a tent peg. Okay, how does that work? What, what does it have to do with any except maybe the knocking sound, right? The thing is when you hammer in a tent peg, what you do is you create actual three-dimensional space. The tent creates the space within which the family can live. It, it's, it's the reality of a house. You know, it's a structure over which the family can conduct all of its life and its business. To sound a musical note creates reality. You know, there's actual vibrations in the air that everybody can hear and share that reality. It's to make something real, to realize it. And so starting with this intense desire, the questioning, the prayer, moving into the search that leaves no stone unturned from bottom to top, from inside to outside, we, are real, we realize the truth. It becomes real in our lives. It becomes solid three-dimensional space. The unseen becomes the seen. This is another process that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is always talking in terms of process, always in terms of emptying out in order to be able to fill up and see the next thing, see the truth of it, because all of the impurities, everything is cleared out of the way. 
So what tools do we have if we're going to do this? How does this actually work in our lives? And, you know, the Methodists, back all the way to John Wesley in the 18th century, they had what they call the, the quadrilateral. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. But the quadrilateral is, is four ways that we can move through this sanctification process, if you will, this, this shape of this journey that Jesus is talking about. And, of course, the first is Scripture, and Scripture is primary. Scripture gives us kind of the goalposts. It gives us in the, the, uh, the edges, the guardrails of, of the road that we're going down. And so everything refers back to Scripture. But then there's also tradition, church tradition. We don't just throw those out as many churches have. Those traditions that have come down through centuries and millennia and generations are, are beautiful and deep and rich, and they can teach us a whole lot of things. And there is our own reason, our own logic, our own common sense. That's a big piece of it. And then finally, there's our experience, the experience we have, right? Scripture, tradition, reason, logic, common sense. And then our experience. Those are all also the tools that we can use to move along this way, to empty out what needs to be emptied out and to move along. As Jim was talking about ACA, what is it doing? It's dealing with the trauma of the past. Empty it out. Get it cleared out. Get your emotional stability so that you can move on. This is, this is the process. Our worship is a tool, isn't it? You know, we have fun playing this music, but what's the music really about? It's about giving your monkey brain the banana so it goes off and eats quietly so that your spirit can come out and play and actually be. It just quiets everything. Why are the worship songs so simple? Why do the words repeat so much? You know, if you're just looking at it at music, it's kind of dull, kind of boring. But then you're not doing it right because once you heard it, you should be able to sing it without looking at the words anymore and just allow that to be. Worship is a great tool. Prayer, especially centering prayer, silent prayer, meditative prayer, our study is a tool. Mindfulness is a tool. Y'all heard of the Enneagram? I know you have and you have. The Enneagram, it, it's an ancient Christian tool. It, it's kind of a spiritual equivalent, and you're probably going to probably hate for me to say this, of a Myers-Briggs personality test. You know, what it's doing is testing your personality. That's a tool. Why? Well, is that, is that, that's way off. Scripture doesn't talk about Enneagrams and Myers-Briggs. No, but it's a way, again, of identifying your personality type. Really what this all comes down to is what do you identify with? Who do you think you really are? If you identify with your emotions, if you identify with your trauma, if you identify with your personality traits that you're wired with, then your identity can't go deep enough to really be identified just with God. This whole journey that Jesus is talking about this way is about identity. It's about letting go of the egoic identity, the identity that we typically on the surface connect with, and moving all the way down to the bottom of the dog pile. Let that all go so we can see who God is and identify there. To know what your personality traits are, so that you can realize, okay, this is how I work, this is how I'm wired, these are my basic traits. I can still exercise the weekend. doesn't mean I have to stay there. But it's a tool to step aside from all that and realize that's not who I am. Who I am is in Christ. Who I am is deeper than all of that. But I've got to clear this stuff out so that I can actually get there. And so all of these are aimed at this weeding out the false identification and to increase awareness, 
consciousness and presence in every moment. If we're not present here at this moment, if we haven't cleared out all this emotional scrabble so that it's just knee-jerk reaction, stimulus response, how are we going to choose as Jesus chose? How are we going to choose in such a way that everybody in our sphere of influence is actually leaving better for having come into contact with us? It's not possible if you're not there, if you're not emotionally sober as well as chemically sober. We've got to be present. All of this is aimed that way. I was um, poking around the internet, you know, just looking for bits and pieces to go with the message, and I ran across an interview that uh, an MSNBC um, host had with Rob Bell, and this was um, 2011. So what's that, six years ago? It's when Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, came out. And it created all this stir, and it's so controversial because it was pointing in, in a universalist direction. And if you don't know what that means, it just means that uh, love wins. You know, there really is no heaven or hell. Everyone will be persuaded by God's love eventually, sometime after death, if not before. And so this is very controversial, of course, in the church. And, and uh, so he got a lot of airplay. What was fascinating about this, though, was that what the interview started with was that just prior to the interview, uh, Japan had that horrible earthquake and tsunami. You all remember that? Okay, it was so devastating. And the pictures, you know, we had all these pictures instantly across the Internet and, and 24 cable uh, stations and whatnot of the tsunami rolling through. And so it was on everybody's mind. And so he says, before we get into the book, I just want to ask you, with regards to the tragedy in Japan, he said, does God care about the people and is not powerful enough to do anything about it? Or does he not care about the people and is all-powerful? I didn't say that very well. You know, is he all-powerful and doesn't care what the people are going through? Or does he care about what the people are going through and doesn't have the power to fix it? So he led with that. And obviously he's trying to trip Rob Bell up. He's trying to paint him into a corner and he's using the classical argument of theodicy to do it. But this was obviously on his mind. And the problem of evil has been one that has dogged humankind since there's been a monotheistic idea. It only crops up with monotheism if there's just one God. You know, if you've got multiple gods, you've got good gods and bad gods, so it's easy where evil comes from. Of course, if you've got God, one God, then you can have the devil, and that's where evil comes from, but it's not a real satisfying answer because the buck still stops with God. He should be able to control the devil, right, if he really wanted to. And so here you go. It's all that, it's all that stuff, right? So now he's got, he thinks, Rob Bell you know, painted into a corner with this paradox. And Bell really didn't answer the question. You know, he started off by saying, no, he believes that God cries when any human suffer. In other words, he cares very deeply. But then he asked him again, you know, with the same formulation, which is it? Does God care or not care? Is he all-powerful or not all-powerful? And Rob just said, you know, this points to a, a paradox deep at the heart of the divine, and some things are left better as a paradox. And uh, everybody laughed, and they just kind of let it alone at that point. But it didn't really answer the question, did it? But look what's at the heart of the question and what's really going on here. You know, the interviewer was trying to use this paradox to get Rob Bell. But he was asking him an unanswerable question, at least as it's framed. 
And that's what we have to look at. It's the assumptions that are faulty, not the fact that you can't answer the question. We have to question the assumptions if we really want to get somewhere with a question like this that trips so many of us up when we're dealing with this problem of evil, the, the difficult things in our lives, our own lives, as well as things globally and whatnot. And so when we question the assumptions, one of the things we have to question is, do we really know what ultimate good and evil is? Do we know that? We assume that we do, but do we really know what that is? Our small child can say that they hate us and think that we're evil because we discipline them, because we restrict their activities, and we do the things because we know that there's a greater good. We're trying to keep them alive long enough to be able to get where they need to go. They don't see that, but we can see that. And we know the difference between the two. Do we assume that we have enough perspective to be able to understand what ultimately is good or ultimately what is evil? See, generally what we do is we assume something is evil if it doesn't conform to our ideas of how life should be, how the world should be, what the moral code should be. That to us is evil. As far as plate tectonics go, Earthquakes are absolutely necessary for life as we know it on this planet to exist. Ultimately, they're a good thing. They're a bad thing if our house is on the fault line when the thing goes off or the water rolls through. And so we say something is evil when it is blocking our desired outcomes, when it is not meeting our expectations, and we say these things are evil. But are they really evil? See, as long as we think that God is good and things are good when life makes sense to us, when it meets our expectations, when it makes our desired outcomes possible, then we're going to continue to resist and reject Jesus as process, as he describes that process. Do you see why? We don't want to go down into that place of devastation. And that's what it feels like personally. We don't want to suffer what needs to be suffered in order to empty out all that stuff because it's the difficult parts of life that have enough abrasion to really get that stuff out of us to start the cleansing process it's not the good times it's the difficult times the challenging times the heinous times in life the ones that we all want to avoid and if we keep calling them evil if we keep tagging them and categorizing and putting them out there and trying to pray them away or saying that, that God must not be God if these things are happening, then we're missing the point of life. What is the point of life? You know, that's what you all got to figure out, but I'll tell you what. If God put us here in order to make the point of life, to fulfill our purpose in life, then life has to be exactly the way it's supposed to be in order for that to happen. Don't you think? Or is it only because Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit in the garden that everything is all screwed up? You know, you're going to have to answer those questions. That, that's not for me to do. But I think if we're really looking seriously at this process of Jesus that says we have to go down into this place of death, figuratively and actually, in order to attain the life that he's talking about, then we have to deal seriously with the difficulties in life. From the tornadoes and the earthquakes to the deaths, and to the loss of jobs and all the other things that are going to hit us in our life. Life 
is exactly what it's supposed to be, which is unanswerable, unresolvable, unsolvable. We don't answer life. We don't solve life. We experience it. We live it with all of its absurdity. I mean, have you ever just thrown up your hands at the absurdity of life sometimes? I mean, just look at this. Just read the headlines and, and look at your life and the things that happen and the things that you hear about other people's life and you just go, everything is just upside down. You know, top is bottom and bottom is top and back is front and it's just like, it's just crazy. You know, just look at Congress. It's absurd. It's crazy. And yet, you have a choice. When you hit that that wall of absurdity and unsolvability and unresolvability of life, it forces you to make a choice. And this is the key. We need to be forced to make a choice. And we can go one of two ways. And yeah, there are all kinds of degrees in between. But the choices are, we can become the cynic. We can become the nihilist. We can become the ones that say, there is no God. Because Life does not conform to my specifications, to my ideas of good and evil, so therefore there can't be a God. Or God can't be good and can't be powerful and can't be all the things that my scripture and my traditions tell me he is. It can't be. And I can become that guy. Or I can become Talia, which is Jesus' solution. That's the Aramaic word that he used that means both child and domestic slave or bondservant at the same time. And the combination of those traits together is saying that God can't be conformed, can't be controlled, or can't be understood. It's just too much. It's an unsolvable mystery. He can't be controlled, he can't be conformed. But you know what? He can be played with. We can play with God. We can't understand him. We can't control him. We can't categorize him, but we can play. We can go into the playground of our lives with that attitude of a child, with the humility of the servant, and we can play. We can let these things go. Such a difference in approaches. Life as it presents forces us to make the choice at some point. We have to choose. We've got to go one way or another. Because if we continue to hold on to our identity, what our ego tells us we are, we are going to consistently move toward the cynic and the nihilist. But if we finally get to the point where we can let that go, now we can go to Talia, to the child, and we can start to actually play at life. I was talking to someone who was telling me that they just had such a blessed life. I mean, it's just amazing how blessed it's been until the last few years when things started to get difficult. And he was telling me that, you know, before things started to get difficult, he had a certain amount of impatience with people who weren't being really successful and doing things right and, and making all the right choices in life. And it's like now he understands. Now there's a certain amount of empathy and compassion. This is what going through the shape of this journey does for us. It deepens us. It gives us gravitas. It allows us to see ourselves as Another broken human being, not any better, not any worse, just there, on the playing field, together, in the boat, rowing together, singing together, having fun. This is where we're going. This is what we can do. I wanted to read to you just 
a little paragraph from Richard Rohr as we come to the end. He writes, Jesus' story of the prodigal son and his story of the Pharisee and the tax collector are both wonderful illustrations of how Jesus turns a spirituality of climbing, achieving, and perfection upside down. In both stories, the ones who have done it wrong are the humble ones about it, the younger son and the tax collector. They're the ones who are forgiven, transformed, and rewarded. Those who are proud of how they have done everything right but also feel superior to others or feel they are now entitled are not open to God's blessing. This is Jesus' great reversal theme. He turns religion on its head. We thought we came to God by doing it right, and lo and behold, surprise of surprises, we come to God by doing it wrong and growing because of it. The only things strong enough to break open our heart are things like pain, mistakes, unjust suffering, tragedy, failure, and the general absurdity of life. I wish it were not so, but it clearly is. Fortunately, life will lead us to the edge of our own resources through such events. We must be led to an experience or situation that we cannot fix or control or understand because that's where faith begins. Up to that moment, it's just been religion. Only on the other side do you know that everything has been preparation. When Jesus called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He himself had to face the darkness and absurdity of life. On the cross, Jesus' human mind had no reason to believe that God was his Father, that God loved him, or that this death had any transformative, redemptive meaning. At this moment, Jesus fully and totally fell into the hands of a loving God, and that is called resurrection. This is a mystery of faith. You know, the older I get, the less life resembles anything I thought it would be, the less it meets any of my expectations, the less it conforms to anything that I was thinking was going to happen. And the more I resist life as it is, as it presents to me, the more miserable, miserable I am. In fact, that's how I know that I'm resisting, by using my misery index. You know, the more miserable I am, the more I'm resisting life as it presents. You know, I'm moving against the, the, the current here instead of allowing to myself to move. What I'm finally finding out and finally getting to a place to understand is that basic meaning and purpose and identity keep shifting inward from external experiences and accomplishments to an interior state of being. Rather than all that stuff, it's just what is going on inside at a given moment. It shifts from the more spectacular to just the commonplace and everyday occurrences. The white butterfly that goes through the courtyard can be a sacred moment if I allow it to be. Yesterday morning was a perfect example of what I'm talking about because I got up already not feeling really great and then I had a couple of phone calls that were putting kind of a fine point on things that were maybe not doing so well with our treatment center or, you know, in, in my work as a pastor. And all those recordings started to play in my head more and more. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough, marketing enough. I'm not doing the things I need to do. We're not growing the way we should be growing. I'm not where I should be at this point. in my. All of that stuff starts to build up. And as that starts to build up, 
my misery index is going off the charts, right? And so I needed to go out and I was buying lunch for the family. So I got in my car and I drove down to a little sandwich shop down the hill and I placed the order and it was kind of hot and stuffy inside the, the store. So I went out and they had some tables out there and I picked a, a seat in the sun and I sat there and I just sort of sat there for a second. And here comes this ocean breeze, you know, right up the Pico Corridor right there. And it's just blowing consistently across my face, just like a trade wind. And it got under my shirt. And so my shirt was billowing out. And it was just felt so good. And the sun was warm. And I'm just sitting there with my eyes closed, just kind of going and just noticing all these sensations as they're going across. And then I opened my eyes and looked up. And there were these three clouds, not maybe 100 feet off the ground, like really close, these wispy kind that were being blown by the wind so that they were just moving and changing and shifting. And, and I'm just watching these things fascinated. Like, and all of a sudden I felt like I was inside this living, breathing work of art. You know, this whole turning globe, I'm part of this thing. It's like a, a living painting, like pageant of the masters or something. You know, there it's alive. And you're a part of this thing and I'm moving with it. And at that moment, I felt great. I felt fine. All of that self-recrimination, all of that stuff went away. What had happened? I allowed myself to come out and play for a moment. I stopped resisting life as it was presenting and saw that life was beautiful. It had a breeze and clouds, you know? I didn't have to go there in my head. Everything was sufficient for right here, for right now. Everything was there waiting for me. There was nothing else that I needed. And what I realized is that this really is the purpose of life. It's the process of becoming someone who can really see the truth that is right in front of him or her, who can now see the person that God is, can be right there in every waking moment, everything that's happening. Someone who really sees that clouds are more important than legacies if it's clouds that are right before you at the moment. It's that simple and it's that difficult. And the only way that we'll get there is by taking the journey and allowing life to work as it's supposed to work in our lives. And then we'll know the truth and the truth will make us scot-free. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for breezes and clouds and white butterflies and anything else that reminds us of your presence in the tiniest of things. Help us to get out of our heads, out of all the things that we make so monumental in our lives and realize that when it's clouds in front of us, Clouds are the most important thing. And when it's work in front of us, work is the most important thing. And when it's our family or our friends, whatever it is, that's the most important thing. And help us to engage there, to be there, to find our fulfillment there and not out someplace in a future, a realm that doesn't exist. You are here and now. Help us to be where you are, Lord. Help us not to resist whatever it is that will take us more and more securely into your space 
speaking your language. Father, thank you. We love you. We want to love you more and more each day. Take us, guide us, shape us, mold us, and never let us forget we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.